Uh, my name is Paul Greengrass. I directed The Bourne Supremacy. Um, it was an amazing adventure. One year from start to finish. began with Tony Gilroy's story, which opened inside Jason Bourne's head, really. What we wanted to do, I suppose, was to explore the next chapter in the Jason Bourne story. The first film, Jason Bourne had discovered that he was a contract killer for the CIA. So the second story needed to deal with the consequences of that. What could Jason Bourne do with the knowledge that he was a killer? How could he engage with life if there was blood on his hands? And so the opening of the movie is all about seeing the shards of disconnected memory, the violent pieces that made up Jason Bourne's mind. And then when he woke up, he needed to be somewhere else, somewhere very different, not Greece, where we'd left him and Marie in, at the end of the first movie. Somewhere further away, somewhere further off the grid. And uh, right before I came on board the project, the decision had been taken to set it in Goa in India, which I actually okay, thought was a brilliant true. idea because it was somewhere just where you would imagine Jason Bourne would go and hide if he'd found that Europe was You're too small. Happy. You know, maybe they'd spent a year or 18 months hiding out in small villages along the Med. But sooner or later, they would need to go further. So where would you go? Australia? No, not good. Okay. South Africa? No. Steady. Goa felt right. It was hip. It was youthful. You could imagine they would blend in. And so that's where our story opens. In a little cottage on the beach. Anything new? And Jason Bourne is tormented. It's just bits and pieces. Tormented by fragments of memory. I can hear Conklin's voice. And there's that photograph. But I just can't stay with it. But you're sure it's not just it a battery? It was a mission. And in a way, some of the there. exuberance of Is their relationship has gone. Maybe there's a little tiredness there. You know, the weariness of being on the run. Never being able to stay in one place too long. But that's why we write it down. But still trying. Trying for something better. Trying for the light. Because that's what the Bourne story is all about. The memory book was an idea that was around for quite a long time as we developed the story. Some physical way of showing Bourne's struggle to reclaim his memory. And it was also an interesting visual element. 
you could almost see on the page the, the confusion, the pain. I wanted these early scenes to bring us closer to Bourne. I think that was really what the second film's all about. Bring us closer to Bourne. And then, of course, we cut to Berlin, which is where the story is played out. And this tells us it's a spy story. Survey 1, this is Hub. You have visual contact. And in a way, it's a classic espionage setup, you know, a stakeout. A clandestine operation is in progress. The CIA are buying information. Hub. And it's off the books, it's secret. But yet it's occurring right in front of us on the streets Martin? where we live and work. I'm here. So is Donnie and Jack Weller. We understand you're using the full allocation for this buy. It's where we came out. It's a lot of money, Pam. For a thief, a mole. If it does nothing more than narrow the list of suspects, it's a bargain at ten times price. And here's where we meet Pamela Landy, who I suppose in terms of the story replaces Conklin, Chris Cooper's character from the first movie. And I wanted Joan Allen because I think Chris Cooper, he's many things as an actor, but above all, he's a classy actor. And I wanted to replace one classy actor with another. And Joan Allen is certainly that. Gives the whole piece an integrity, I think, an elevation. Here's Carl, Carl Urban, our bad guy. But his look needed to be charismatic and immediately compelling. So that in the midst of this, you know, classic espionage operation, you would have a, a suddenly youthful and contemporary figure walk across the stage and grab your attention. And that's what Carl certainly did. It's an interesting part of the film, this, because we've met Jason Bourne, we've met Marie, but now it's an opportunity to see the cast of characters who are going to weave our story. And I think your audience at this stage of the film is prepared to allow you to trail a mystery, to go far and wide in the story, really, before you start to gather the threads in further down the film. was a difficult scene to shoot this. It, it, in fact, we shot it twice. The first um, version of this scene we lost because we had a laboratory processing problem. Those are shots. And it needed to have a certain sort of archness to it. So in the end, it is quite a theatrical event, a, a clandestine buy, but it needed to feel real too. But above all, we needed to know that the pressure was on landing. I don't care if it's visual one, can you copy please? Are you there, mobile one? I'm sorry.
so we unfold the mystery. What is Kirill doing? Why has he shot these two people? And of course, this is the scene that deepens the mystery. It's to do with oil in some way. And it in some way connects with Russia too. wealthiest men in Russia after consolidating drilling rights in the Caspian Sea and gaining control of one of the world. I love this scene taking place in a little motel room next to the airport. It sort of reminded me somewhere of the motel room where all the president's men began. Just a like a Howard Johnson's or you know, not a flashy hotel, just a down at heel motel room, a contract killer. And a very rich Russian. They've been hatching some kind of plot. And we just know this is something to do with Jason Bourne. But we don't know what the connection is yet. And of course, when we come back to Goa for our second Indian chapter, as an audience, you implicitly understand you're going to find out how all this mystery connects. But first, let's build Bourne's character. Let's stay close to Bourne. Restless, always running. And just a glimpse here of Marie's idyll, how life, I suppose, could have been if they were not always on the run. But of course, when she opens the book, it's like her window into Bourne's mind. Beautifully edited sequence, this, I think. We had two editors on this film, Chris Rouse, Rick Pearson. Yet you would never know. Such was the synchronicity of their styles. And they cut this film with an intensity and an originality that has a lot to do with its qualities, I think. That ability to take small pieces and capture an unusual rhythm and yet land on the point and deliver you to the next scene as they have here. We're out in the streets. This, of course, is classic Bourne world. It's unfolding in present tense. Out of nowhere, danger comes. interesting looking at Carl and Matt here. You'd think this all looks pretty easy to perform this stuff, but actually it's acting of a very high quality to compel attention without dialogue, where just looks and gestures have got to carry it. Good morning, sir. Morning. He's my friend. There's been a death in the family, and I wonder if you've seen him. 
And always it's about the intensity in the eyes. It's a straightforward thriller setup. This the challenge is to try and make it fresh. It's it's I think it's the first moment in the film where if I had been watching I'd be going, yes, this is what I expected to see when I came to see the sequel to The Bourne Identity. And it, it lifts you up. Danger. How will Bourne react? Hey! Get in. What's wrong? We're blown. How? We pushed it. We got lazy. India was a great choice too because of the textures, the, the look of it. It's just exotic without being forced. It just is a different palette. They look completely of that world too. The buses I love and the teeming streets, the ordinariness of it. This is real. That's him. That's him right there. Get your head down. Silver Hunter, get your head down. I suppose really this scene sets the template of the style of this film, which, you know, arises out of Doug's style for the first movie, but I suppose it's a little more fluid, perhaps a little more How far is it? intensely immediate. I want it to be with Bourne, always with Bourne, closer to him as a character, closer to him in action. When he runs, we run. When he escapes in the Jeep, we're in the Jeep with him. I wanted the audience to feel that they had had the experience of life with Bourne and that it should feel real. I mean, this is a classic. How do you switch seats? You know, we wanted them to switch seats because Bourne's got to take on Kirill, but to stop the car and run round would have been deeply inelegant. And so we worked with them to literally to change seats as the car was moving.
shocking moment. But again, I wanted us to feel like we were there. Incredibly scary, I think, to work in underground tanks. I mean, those actors were literally inside a jeep in 12 feet of water, slightly more. And a total nightmare. I mean, you are literally immersed with nothing to breathe in a tank. And all you have to do is hold your breath and try and act. It's acting of a very high quality here because it's full of detail. You look at this scene here and you see what both of them are doing here. You know, the immobility on Franca Patenta's face. Hard when you're fighting rising panic, I think. You've got to trust that the divers are there off camera to come and dive in if you get in trouble. But then you look at the detail on Matt's face when we come round the other way here. To tell that story from panic, the struggle to escape, the death throes, the three kisses, the first two being an attempt to resuscitate, the third one being a kiss of farewell. It's wonderful detail and all good acting is about detail. It's about fighting generality. And then a last little glimpse of Carl. And it's a very significant moment, I suppose, in, in the sense of our story, Teddy Gilroy's story. He wanted Marie to die, and he was quite right. Because in a way, it's a brave decision, because the Ball-Marie relationship in the first film was really the heart of the first film's success. It was a relationship that everybody bought into it. You know, when they met together at the end of the film in the cafe in Greece, you know, you, you wanted them to survive. You wanted them to go on their journey and to kill her off so early was a bold and radical thing to do. And I think in many ways, although the film takes a hit for it in the sense that you go, oh, well, we're not going to go on an adventure with the two of them again. Of course, what it does do is unlock all sorts of possibilities for a, a darker story for Bourne, and a new, fresh story for Bourne. A Bourne who would now have to be alone. And so, many ways, the Bourne supremacy in terms of being a fresh chapter begins at the moment that Marie dies. An early glimpse of Moscow. Important that because later in our story we're going to return in different circumstances. Now the pace is starting to pick up, the interweaving of our elements of story from Moscow to Goa to Berlin. But before that happens, just a, a moment to remember Marie.
And of course, one of the things Matt and I talked about was that Bourne perhaps had a military background and there was always the possibility of a salute at this point. Almost as if he would salute a fallen comrade before picking up on his journey, which will be a journey of revenge. So now we have quite an interesting situation because obviously Bourne is now going off on a journey to discover who killed Marie and why. But meanwhile, Landy is off on her own journey to find out who's killed her people and why. And that journey will bring her to Treadstone and ultimately to Jason Bourne. You're going to have to give me a level five SCI access. We have a lead, Marty. All right. You've got your clearance, but you're on a very short leash. And you give a full report to the group. I want to know where you're going with this. <laughs> Sir. I love that. Whatever journey she's going on, the authorities don't want her to go on it. So we start to weave together these two journeys. And in this scene, they intersect. Because now she knows it's Bourne's fingerprint. See, this is a scene which I suppose in some ways reprises some necessary information from the first film, but I wanted to still sell our style that it should be handheld, unconsidered, raw, rough, that you see things almost despite themselves rather than have it served up to you spoon fed. And it also gives us an opportunity to meet Abbott, Brian Cox, who'd played an important role in the first film, but in this second film comes centre stage, as we shall see. Excuse me, can I help you? Yeah, I'm here to see Mr. See you. I love this scene. Operation Treadstone. Never heard of it. It's not going to fly. Whenever you're dealing with scenes of confrontation, you want evenly matched adversaries, but adversaries of different qualities. And I think with Brian and Joan in this scene, you've got two perfectly matched 
Actors, contrasting styles. Joan, cool and reserved, and a piercing intelligence, and Brian with that power and authority. But nacious. Sparks fly. You want my desk, is that it? I want to know what happened. What happened? Jason Bourne happened. You got the files. Then let's cut the crap. Hey, you know, I think at this stage that you're in for a, an interesting ride. Bourne was his number one. The guy went for a job, screwed the up, never came back. Conklin couldn't fix it, couldn't find Bourne, couldn't adjust. It all went sideways. So you had Conklin killed? I mean, if we're cutting the crap. I've given 30 years and two marriages to this agency. I've shoveled shit on four continents. I'm due to retire next year. But if you think I'm going to sit here and let you dangle me with this, you can go to hell. And Marshall, too. It had to be done. And Bourne, where is he now? Dead in the ditch. Drunk in a bar in Mogadishu. Who knows? I think I do. I had a deal going down in Berlin last week. And during the buy, both our case officer and the seller were killed. They were killed by Jason Bourne. They're ready for us upstairs. I love the way in the Bourne stories, the plots are tangled and the span of the story is limitless. It's Naples one minute, it's Goa the next, it's Berlin, it's London, it's Washington. It's, it's an interconnected world that Bourne's running from. Seven years ago, $20 million of CIA... And the arbitrary pieces of the story keep coming unless you lay them down like pieces of a jigsaw. As an audience, I think you're struggling to find pieces that fit together. And I like the way that this film defeats you in that for quite a long time. You don't really understand what the connections are, but yet you know there are connections. There's a lot of pleasure in that for an audience, I think. Turns out the assassin was one of our own, Jason Bourne. I know Treadstone's not a very popular subject around here, but we found some interesting... Beautifully cut scene, this is the little looks and bring the scene alive, make it seem real. Because essentially it's a scene of exposition, this. And quite dense, but Chris and Rick somehow put this together in a way that gives it life. He was sitting on a personal account in the amount of $760,000. You know what his budget was? We were throwing money at him, throwing it at him and asking him to keep it dark. It was his own account. He was up to something. This is supposed to be definitive. What's definitive is that I just lost two people in Berlin. So what's your theory? Conklin's reaching out from the grave to protect his good name? The man is dead. No one's disputing that word. Oh, for Christ's sake, Marty, you knew Conklin. Is this scam? I mean, that all? It cut to the chase, Pam. I think that Bourne and Conklin were in business together, that Bourne's still involved, and that whatever information I was trying to buy in Berlin was big enough to bring Bourne out from hiding to kill again. How's that, Scan? Excuse me, sir. Look, you're not going to believe this. Jason Bourne's passport just popped up on the grid in Naples. That music sting's very important. I think okay. that says... Contact Naples. They need to know who they're dealing with. The threads of our story Find are about to touch. And when they do, something will happen. No, it's nothing. Some guy's name came up on the computer. 
playing daddy. Yeah. Hey, listen, Tom, I'm gonna call you back, okay? I love the proposition of this scene. This was Matt's idea, actually, that we should have a scene where, in essence, he was playing possum. Because the audience knows that. Even if you don't know it consciously, you know that he is one concealed ball of energy. You're coming out of Tangiers, is that correct? And this officious young CIA officer doesn't uh, realise that he's picked the wrong man to be officious with. He thinks he's in control, but we know he's not. Look, I don't know what you did, and I don't know who you're working for, but I promise you this. You're going to play ball one way or the other. <laughs> that little look there tells you everything. Is Nevins? This is Tom Crowe, CI operations officer calling from Langley, Virginia. Do you have a Jason Bourne in custody? Yes, I do. Listen, he's an agency priority target. I understand. Well, I suppose the most important thing to know about that scene is that the punch to Bourne's left that laid out our hapless Nevins, the CA officer, was real. That actually laid him out. And when he came round, he said, did you get it on camera? I thought he'd have broken his nose or something, because it was an hell of a whack. But it works. Made the scene look real. Here's the number. He's being interrogated by a field officer out of the consulate. This is where I wanted the film to pick up real pace, real momentum. Almost a signal that the scattering of the threads of the story Hello. is complete. This is Pamela Landy, CI supervisor. Where do we stand? And now yeah. it's about gathering them in. He got away. Damn it. I think the transition from the end of Naples is that transition. Transition from the story opening out to the story starting to come together again. And it's also the moment when Bourne is thrown into action. I want you to secure that area. I want any evidence secured, and I want it done right now. Is that clear? Yes, sir, ma'am. I'm getting on a plane to Berlin in 45 minutes, which means you're going to call me back at 30. And when I ask you where we stand, I had better be impressed. Berlin? I already have a team in place there. I doubt that Bourne's in Naples ready to start a family. You have no idea what you're getting into here. Do you have any idea from the minute he left Treadstone, he's killed and eluded every single person that you've sent to find him? So you read a couple of files on Jason Bourne, that makes you an expert? This is my case, Ward. Enough. I want you both on that plane. We are all of us going to do what we were either too lazy or inept to do the last time around. We're going to find this son of a bitch and take him down. I'm not having Jason Bourne destroy any more of this agency. Is that definitive enough for you? Yes. 
Jason Bourne is armed and extremely dangerous. Last week in Berlin, he assassinated two men, one a highly experienced field officer. I want that area secured. Berlin, he assassinated two men, one a highly experienced field officer. I want that area secured. I want any evidence secured, and I want it done right now. Flashback issue was an interesting one. We discussed it a lot, whether to take the colour out or put my colour in, or maybe use visual effects to augment them. But in the end, I always fancied they needed to be just real, no different. So that we understood that whatever it was that troubled him happened on a rainy night in a car. important seeing this because I think it brings you close to Bourne in his solitariness. I think it sets a template for what we're trying to do with the character. Julie Stiles was an actress I didn't know her but I admired her work. I always fancied she had more of a role to play in this second story, that somehow she could make the story turn on Bourne's encounter with her. And I wanted to change her look. You know, it was a couple of years later on, she would be a woman who had tried to put the experience of Treadstone behind her. But of course, one day, probably as she had always suspected, it would turn up on her doorstep. Anger, behaviors. They had physical symptoms, headaches, sensitivity to light. Amnesia? Before born? No. Plane's ready. There's a car waiting for you. Good luck. Yep. It's you a very interestingly shot scene, this one. I love the composition. You're coming with us. Sort of informal and, and yet quite confident. I always feel when I hear this theme that the film started to kick in. She feel, I think, a more focused sense of two journeys, Bournes to Berlin and of course Landis to Berlin. And I guess you know they're gonna collide. Shot this at Berlin's Tempelhof Airport. Extraordinary, fast structure. Berlin's a very flat city. It's not a city with ready landmarks, but of course it's a city with a legacy of division. It's a city with a dark past and a bright future. And in that sense, it was a great city for Bourne's next chapter to be played out because he's a character with a dark past and a bright future, or trying to make a bright future. He's making his first mistake. It's not a mistake. 
They don't make mistakes. They don't do random. There's always an objective, always a target. The objectives and targets always came from us. Who's giving them to him now? Scary version? He is. This is one of my favourite scenes. Just an ordinary suburban street, upscale. Quite aggressively designed, but but yet still middle class, ordinary, aspiring, yuppie. A man arrives home, decodes his alarm. He's obviously a meticulous man. You can see that by the way he takes off his coat and his glasses. Bourne's one step ahead. I emptied it. It felt a little light. Put it down. I wanted it to feel like a goldfish bowl, so that you could feel that whatever occurred in this space would be visible if you bothered to look from the street. There was nothing hidden about it. It was just an ordinary house. A great setting, I think, for a meeting between the last two Treadstone operatives. You lost your memory. You still should have moved. What do you want? Conklin. He's dead. Shot dead in Paris. Dead the night you walked out. So who's running Treadstone now? Nobody. They shut it down. It's over. We're the last two. <laughs> Great idea. The last two Treadstone operatives meet. Me. I don't know. Ever heard the name Pamela Landy? I don't know who that is. Pamela Born Landy desperate for knowledge. I don't know. Why would I lie? I thought you were here to kill me. What'd you do? I'm sorry. Did you call it in? Get up. Come on. You have a car out front? The keys are in my coat pocket, but we should... What? Go out the back. I have another car. Fight. I wanted to be like a, a cruel and vicious ballet. I loved the texture of the blinds. Sort of physical and made you feel the impact, made you feel the messiness of it. There was something very pristine about the fight in the first film, which was wonderful, but I wanted this fight to be messier and more real and, and yet still feel like a structured dance. And to have good texture, glass, Venetians, paper. 
Jeff, our fight coordinator, came up with the idea of the rolled up magazine. It was an absolutely brilliant and very Bourne-esque touch. Bourne, of course, unlike James Bond, he doesn't have technology to get him out of trouble. He has to improvise with what's available and what better than a magazine? Turn a magazine into a lethal weapon. Brilliant. Shocking moment, I think. And Matt is quite brilliant here. A look of revulsion. Like a man who's fallen off the wagon after two years. He's killed again. And then, quick as a flash, back into born mode, aware of the danger. moonshot. We had so many cameras out on it. But it looked real. It looked like a gas explosion. And then time again for another little look at Bourne. Always trying to bring us closer to what he thinks and feels about it. And this is one of my favourite scenes in the film. The level of detail again is magnificent here. The timing of when to look up, the way that hand is being scrubbed, you can tell there's nerves there and that he knows he's got to look. Then this is a look that says, I will do it, whatever it takes. And that little tissue in the box tells you is resolved. It's very interesting, you know, on a film set, films are the products of many hands. Good films are generally good because the group of people that make them work with each other, fire off each other, and that was certainly true of this film. It was a, an extremely harmonious film, I think. And, you know, on any film set at any given moment, there are problems to be solved. And generally people on sets see their own problems. You know, a sound man will see the problem of the sound. You know, maybe there's an aeroplane close or whatever. The cameraman will see his or her problems. Maybe the light's not falling in the right direction. You know, the designer will want the whole set to be seen. Uh, you know, the electricians will be worried about where to set the lights. You know, the producer will be worried about how the director's doing. The director will be worried about all the million things you worry about. And all the time, everybody on film sets is always looking for their problems to be solved individually. 
But when you look at an actor, particularly the leading actor in a film, the thing I'm always very conscious of is that the actor is the one person on a film set who can solve everybody's problems in one instant. By looking at just the right moment, he or she can open the shot up and make it work, can make the light fall in just the right way, by speaking at just the right level, can solve the sound man's problems, by opening the body, can open the set up. It's a very special responsibility. And Matt, as an actor, has that ability to do it time and time and time again. And it's the mark of a great, great actor. That ability to solve problems instinctively, that ability to do what needs to be done with impeccable timing and great sense of understatement and yet presence. To inhabit the character so thoroughly that even as in this sequence where he's following her, you see all the colours of Bourne, the ingenuity by which he traces Landy, the determination that he's going to track her down. The implacable look on his face. That ability to command the story without a word. And that was the great challenge of this film. How could Bourne dominate this film when he had so little to say? And it was, I think, a triumph that in this performance he brought us so close to the human cost of Bourne. Now, I want to break this out in boxes. Naples outbound, check everything, flights, trains, police... And, of course, it's great that this scene is intercut with what's going on in the hub, as we call it, the CIA secret location where the Bourne operation is being run from. And I wanted this to feel real and live and as if they really wanted him. Of course, what they don't know is he's outside. Stay on the local cops. We need a vehicle, a parking ticket, something. Langley's offered to upload any satellite imaging we need, so let's find a target for them. Danny, box four. I need fresh eyes. Review the buy where we lost the Nesby files. Timeline it with what we know about Bourne's movements. Turn it upside down and see what you find. Come on, guys, we ran this guy's life with total control for all those years. We should be a step ahead of him. You want to go home? Find Jason Bourne. crucial scene this in Bourne's character development because our two stories, our story of revenge and our story of doubt and confusion that we've been sowing from the beginning of the film through the flashbacks, now the two are going to meet because the answers that Bourne is given by Landy are not the ones that he expects. And who's planning the missions now? He realises in this scene that something else is going on. Something inside his mind that he needs more answers. You killed two people, Born. You killed two people, Born. Let him Born. I want to come in. 
Again, it's a scene okay. constructed out of looks. The detail from every actor here is good. The sense of concentration, intensity is what sells the paranoia of Bourne's world. Send her alone. Give her your phone. What if I can't find her? She's standing right next to you. It's a moment that always gets a good response because Bourne is one step ahead. Say here between Landy and Abbott is going to start to pay off. Now we've got a confrontation. Can I talk to you privately? <laughs> uh oh. What? I know how you're feeling. You lost two men in Berlin and you wanted to mean something. But nothing Bourne gives you will bring your men back. Nothing in those files makes their sacrifice worthwhile. I always feel this is the point in the film where it's won or lost. Somewhere in this next 10 minutes, the film reaches a new level of intensity, I think. It starts to unfold in real time. And that was what I wanted. I'm interested in films when they become kinetic, when they are no longer boulders that you've got to push uphill. They seem to roll downhill. They seem to unfold of their own accord. Things go bad. And that only happens when you've assembled the pieces in the right way. And that's often quite hard and painful, particularly in the cutting because it's about judging pace and what's really relevant and letting go of things that you like that maybe really work in isolation and, and, and just creating a coiled spring that's basically what it is a motor mechanism a story mechanism that's going to drive on and propel your characters through and i think at this point this set piece i think is where you really feel that this story is starting to take on a life of its own that it's happening right in front of you and i think this is an important scene too because it says something about the values of born you know, you may not have noticed, but a few scenes earlier, Bourne driving on his way to the station, there's a little inconsequential shot of a set of posters. You don't notice it when you're watching the film for the first time, but in fact it's announcing a demonstration, and of course Bourne has seen that, lodged it in his mind, so when he makes this meet, he chooses Alexander Platz because he knows that crowd will arrive at that time and will give him cover. I wanted it to be a non-specific demonstration. In fact, it's a student demonstration about tuition fees, but I wanted it to say something about the sort of division of the world between us and them. Born uses the protesting crowd to hide him, it's his friend. 
But of course, to them, it's their enemy. And that, I think, is very, very important in describing the universe in which Bourne's story plays out. It's a subversive universe. It's a universe where we can't trust the authorities. We can't trust what they're saying to us. And we have to search for our own answers as Bourne is searching for his. And those answers are on the street. He's a renegade from the secret world, the closed world, the world of authority. And that makes him a quite unique hero, I think, particularly in modern mainstream franchise cinema, if you like, mainstream Hollywood cinema. Get her out of there. Go, Delta, move, now. It's interesting if you think of James Bond and Jason Bourne. They're superficially very similar characters. They're characters cut from the same cloth. They're characters that originated in Cold War books, you know, the Bond, the Ian Fleming novels and the Robert Ludlum novels. They were novels of the Cold War. They were both spies. But on film, Jason Bourne is a very different character from James Bond. James Bond embodies a value system. He's an insider. He loves the secrecy of it. He loves being a secret agent. He kills without remorse or regret. In fact, often he rather enjoys it and finds it humorous. He's an imperialist. He's a misogynist. He's a man who worships at the altar of technology. He's always got a gadget or some gun that comes out of a turret on the end of his car or something, some way whereby technology will rescue him. And he, in the end, he protects authority and he has no doubts. But Bourne is a quite different character. Bourne is an outsider. He's on the run from authority. He's subversive of authority. He doesn't trust them at all. He doesn't want to kill at any cost. He would rather not kill. He's absolutely not a misogynist. He's a man racked with doubt and confusion, desperately searching for an answer. And that's what makes him contemporary and youthful. And, and that's why, in the end, I think that the Bourne character, the Bourne franchise, speaks to today today's world, today's problems, tomorrow's problems, in a way that Bond cannot ever do, it seems to me. And I think that's why, when you look at the Bourne supremacy, I think you can see and want more chapters in the Bourne story. I think there are many more chapters, contemporary thrillers, Bourne struggling for answers in a confused and threatening world, because... I think that's where we are now. I think that we're in confused and confusing times. And I think what's interesting about this film is that it comes out at a time when, you know, the Congressional Inquiry, the 9-11 Inquiry, the various inquiries in Britain and America into the war in Iraq have shown that our governments, particularly the secret parts of our governments, have profoundly let us down, have not told us the truth about very, very important things like why we went to war. And the consequence of not having levelled with us is a great tide of mistrust, I think, coursing through both my country and, and the United States. I think that that tide of mistrust 
is floating around. And so when you go to the cinema on a Saturday night and you see Jason Bourne on the streets of Europe and he's on the run from authority and he doesn't trust them and he can't trust what they say and he's desperately searching for answers, I think, yes, it's a fantastic ride. It's got to be entertaining. But something about that character, something about the way Matt does it, speaks to where we are today. It just has that electricity, that resonance, that connection. So you go, I'm with that character. I want to know where he's going. I want to know what he's looking for. I'm invested in him. And when he walks those streets, you're with him. And that's why I think this franchise will live on. I need to show you something. Too. It's a simple scene. I mean, we've seen it a million times. It's the now I'm finally making progress scene. I'm starting to put these pieces together. And I wanted it to, to start to reveal a contemporary story. A story about oil and privatisation and a good politician who'd been killed because he was standing up for fairness and justice and born to realize that he had somehow been involved in this terrible thing, this undemocratic thing, this unprogressive thing. And how was he to make amends? First, we need to know who our bad is. All right, finish my box work, but I wanted to show you. So we return to the beginning, to the electrical closet where our fingerprint was found. I mean, I'm with you. Conklin was a nut, but a traitor. I just can't get there. What do you have, Danny? This is Gabe Mann's scene. He plays it quite beautifully, I think, because he's got an earnestness and a sort of professionalism. You find him in any government office. He's well-intentioned. He's ambitious. He's a doer. But he's got it all terribly wrong in his earnestness. He's not seen the nature of the man he's dealing with. And there's two characters, a young, earnest, naive, government servant and a cold warrior. Father and son in many ways. And you think he's killed him without compunction and then you get this little look that Brian gives here. You know it's caused him pain, and it's tiny little bits of detail like that in a performance give a character depth. This is not a drill, soldier. You know, it's it's 
It's acting of a high order. A live project. Your go. We'll see you on the other side. It was wonderful to have Chris Cooper back in a cameo from the grave. Just kept some continuity with the first film and reminded us of that bizarre and compelling character called Conklin. Good evening, sir. How can I help you? Yeah, hi. I wanted to get a room for the night. Do you have a reservation? No. Actually, is room uh, 645 available? I've stayed there before. I love looking at Matt's face in this scene. It's, it's an extraordinary journey because he's got that open American face. But you look at those eyes there. They're restless and troubled. And it's the desperation in those eyes and hope that maybe he might find an answer, but fear too. It's, it's washing across. his sense of pacing here. Very difficult scene to play. I mean, think how far now Jason Bourne has been alone on this journey. He's barely had a line of dialogue since he, since before he fought with Yada in that house. And yet, you know exactly what journey he's on, you know what he's thinking, you know that he's evolving as a character. There's ingenuity and improvisation along the way but it's done without dialogue it's enacted not told I think this is a delicious sequence then the net tightens around him so as Bourne gets closer to the mystery of the Brecker Hotel, so his enemies get closer to him. And it's, of course, suspenseful, exciting. And I wanted all the elements now to kind of come together, you know, a sense of visceral unfolding action but also a sense of a fractured mind, the boundaries between the past and the present starting to disintegrate. And the sort of liquidness of the imagery mingling with sharp detail, the syringe, the gun, hard, metallic, physical, sharp-edged things that would jar and jolt in a smoothly flowing river of images and that at the heart of it would be the shocking revelation that Bourne had killed a woman in cold blood. Tony Gilroy's first treatment for this story, which is really where I began and came on, 
always had three pillars. The first pillar was the death of Marie at the beginning of the film. The second pillar was this shocking, recovered memory of Bourne slaughtering Nesky and his wife and leaving it as a murder-suicide. And the third pillar was the journey to their daughter at the end of the film. And we went as a group, all of us, on a long, long journey for a whole year to try and find the best way to tell the story of Bourne's journey. But those central pillars of the story never altered. They never altered in what they were, and they never altered in where they were. And in the end, that was Tony's... He made many, many gifts to this film, but that was his central achievement, I think, to construct a story full of the darkest, most uncompromising, most interesting elements. And somehow we all worked to craft a story with you know, immediacy and excitement, a chase, a, a quest. But it was on those three central pillars that we did it. That'll really work. What the hell is he doing here? Maybe he just wants to stay the night. always with a plan, even under pressure. He takes the time to check the times of the subway, check his watch. He's a man who's got to run for a train now. But he has half the Berlin Police Department on his tail. And I wanted our action to be stripped back, not to do with effects, just a chase, a brutal, simple, energetic chase. Born on the run, you know. He never ran in the first film, but he runs in this one, and I love it. I feel somewhere the film take wings. I think you're with him and you wonder what his choices are. He's got the train, but of course the train's not gone yet and the police are on the platform and they're at either end, so what's he going to do? There's a train coming, then again that noose is tightening ever tighter. So he makes one last break, but he's worked it out. The train will stop them following, gives him 30 seconds. He's up onto the other platform, over the bridge. Oof, that must have hurt. So now he's on the barge, but he's going to blindside them because as the barge moves out from the bridge, he's got to get back under cover, but he's hurt his leg. But he's still got that plan. but it all depends on timing and improvisation. If this was James Bond, he'd produce some 
stupendous device that would enable him to fly out of trouble. But Jason Bourne, it's a boat hook. I love that little look for the guy on his left. <laughs> Jason Bourne jumps out of the rafters of that bridge. The quality of the extra sporting artists in Berlin was superb, I thought. It was a very, very film-friendly city. You know, you take a big film like Bourne Supremacy to a city, you know, you need cooperation because things change and you need to change locations, often quite late in the day, and, you know, you need to close streets and cause disruption and set gigantic lights definitely Berlin is a place to film they have a passion for movies there they love having movies in the city and as I say it's an interesting place place where the future is being made it's not safe and suburban I think I'll uh take a cab back to the hotel. So the room he checked into was across the hall. Mm. Why would he come in here? What are you thinking? I recognize this room from a photo. There was a chalk outline right here, around the body of Vladimir Nesky. This is where his wife killed him? Do you still think his wife killed him? There's a gun out through this window. We just got word from the Berlin police. They found Danny Zorn's body. I want you two to stay on Bourne. Check everything that's out there. Call that, but tell him to wait for me in his hotel. I'm coming to see him. Kill Bourne and you kill this investigation. I'm afraid, War. The time has come for us to part company. Listen, Yuri, you bought those oil leases with 20 million and stolen CIA seed money. You owe me. I gave you your cut. We both got rich. I don't owe you anything. The plan can still be salvaged. Just get Bourne. Do you hear me? He's still out there. Now get him. Get Jason. It's a great moment, I think, when Bourne emerges to confront Abbott. Good to cry for help, huh? 
much. You killed her. It was a mistake. It was supposed to be you. There were files linking me to the Nesky murder. If the files disappeared and they suspected you, they'd be chasing a ghost for 10 years. So he got in the way. Is that why Nesky died? Is that why you killed Marie? You killed Marie. The minute you climbed into her car, the minute you entered her life, she was dead. I told you people to leave us alone. I fell off the grid. I was halfway around the world. There's no place that won't catch up to you. It's how every story ends. It's what you are, Jason. A killer. You always will be. Go ahead. Go on. Go on. Do it. Do it. She wouldn't want me to. That's the only reason you're alive. Tape and gun. Sort of makes the scene concrete somehow. Dangerous point in a film, this a thriller, because the story's been going long enough that you're wanting some answers and you're going to have to give them answers. You know, the story is beginning to tie up, but yet you have to feel that you've got a last act that your audience is going to want to engage in. They're not just going to feel tired and feel like, okay, well, it's done now, I've, I've seen enough. A lot of our editing dilemmas were how to navigate the tricky swamplands before the beginning of the final act. You know, you have to pay characters and storylines off sufficiently that you feel satisfied, but you've got to keep your pace up. So what do we do now? I'm not sorry. In a way, I think one of the reasons why we were able to pick our way through this tricky territory was because of the quality of Brian and Joan. That We wanted to know, I think, what was going to happen to those two characters. I think the end, when it comes, is shocking. And equally, when we come back to Bourne, the investment we've made in his character comes to the fore because... I think we're now starting to feel that this is no longer a journey of revenge, but it's a quest for something more mysterious, perhaps larger, more noble. And somehow you've got to build all the pieces so that when you hit your third act, you feel a surge of new energy and a real sense of anticipation that there's yet one more chapter in the story to go and perhaps the best of all Got a call from Langley. They're uh, going through Abbott's records and 
Marshall wants to know what's going on with Bourne. I was very lucky on this film to have Frank Marshall, my producer. Because, you know, my world was the world of small films, independent films, small little European things that could be made for the cost of the catering budget on the Bourne Supremacy. And there was Frank with all that experience of all those wonderful films he's made. And there were times when I got a little despairing at how we were going to navigate into this final act. And Frank was always there with concrete ideas as to how it would go. An endless source of wisdom and inspiration. gag, I thought, the nightclub that becomes a daylight scene. Where is your phone? What is it? One of the great things about the Bourne franchise, I think, is that people speak in the languages they speak in. You know, it's in Russia, so people speak Russian, and this shot tells you we've entered the final act. This is my favourite music cue. John Powell's score in this film is quite magnificent. It's insistent and forceful and yet lyrical full of the restless, questing, troubled soul that is Jason Bourne. It's got a pulse there, but it's got a lyrical figure too that is Bourne's sense of hope, I suppose, his yearning for the light, his yearning to arrive. This was actually the first thing we shot in the whole film. We went to Moscow, it was a bitterly cold day, and I wanted Moscow, which is a city I know very well. I've filmed there before, documentaries at the beginning of the 90s. I wanted it to be the Moscow that I know, not the Moscow of the Cold War, but the new Moscow, which is an exhilarating, exuberant, conflicted, but exciting city, rather like Berlin actually, again a city with a dark past but making a brighter future and again a great place to play out Bourne's final act. Forces of law and order there are, but they're grappling with the anarchy and the Klondike culture of modern Russia. Exuberant place, creative place magnificent sense of architecture. I wanted to choreograph the elements so that we would produce our final climax. 
again as Bourne gets closer and closer to the purpose of his journey. We don't yet know what it is. It's in this scene that we find out. This is actually back in Berlin, though you'd never know it. We actually shot this street in Berlin. There are sections of Berlin that are almost indistinguishable from Moscow. The rest of it was in Moscow, but this small piece was not. So we know they're on to him. But now we know that Bourne has a noble purpose. He's looking for the daughter of the Neskis that he killed. And it's important that we know that because otherwise we might think that Bourne has come to Moscow for more revenge. But at this moment, we know he hasn't. He's come in search of redemption. And yet, Kirill and Gretkov and the Russian authorities are all making common cause to prevent him. And we root for him. We want him to succeed. So we want to up the ante for Bourne. Let's give him some more difficulty. Let's shoot him. Again, I wanted the film to start to unfold again in the present tense, to become fluid, to become purely kinetic. That point when story and plot, narrative, character, they all get left behind and it's somewhere just an elemental engagement physical struggle, the hunter and the hunted, to feel ourselves with Bourne as he desperately tries to escape. So first he needs a map, socks, he needs a bottle of vodka, though we don't know why. Great clothes Carl's got there. Our clothes are very important in this film. Dinah Collin, who designed the wardrobe and worked magnificently well with Dominic Watkins, the designer to create a contemporary look for this film. Born 
strip back into one costume, the black coat. And that little hooded top that Kirill's wearing just gives it a hint of modernity. Play off the leather coat. I love this part of the film. Now you know that we're going to get the chase. Dominic's design was unobtrusive and yet impeccable. It gave the whole film a sense of modernity, I think. Classicness. Well, our car chase was the biggest set piece of the film, and I was very lucky. I had Dan Bradley as second unit director, whose chase in many ways this is. And he and I, I think, saw the world the same way. I think we had a liking for the real, the immediate, the kinetic. I wanted the chase to be with Bourne. And Dan shared that. And we, uh, we worked through the storyline of it. And Dan did a lot of lonely and brilliant work in Moscow getting a lot of these images. We wanted it to be absolutely blisteringly real. Not to do with special effects or visual effects or spinning cars, but just what it would feel like if you were in a high-speed chase through the streets of Moscow. In many ways, it's probably the most successful sequence in the film, and I think it's a testimony to the collective endeavour that lay at the heart of this film. You know, it was a boldest of decisions by the studio and by Frank and Pat, the producers, to mount this vast chase in Moscow and to encourage us to be as bold as we could. Dan, I think brilliantly to set and record all of the most compelling images. I think the acting is of a very high order here and the tiny little images of shards that we see of Carl and Matt but each one is telling a story you know because a chase only works if it's telling a story if it's got beats within it that unfold you know like this one where they see each other for the first time and you know that he recognizes him and in Carl's reaction, you know that he's going to try and get him. And so all of us in this film came together, I think, to play our parts in this chase. I'm very proud of it. I think when I look back, that's what I have a sense of, of all the many skills that are present on a film deployed together to deliver a, an absolutely visceral, blistering, five or six minutes. Skills of technique and performance and... I mean, the stunt driving skills alone were awesome. 
and the score magnificent driving driving this thing home This film has become pure motion and energy. A ride is truly what it's become. I think Matt's performance here is quite exceptional. Again, it's detail, intensity. They say acting is about what lies behind the eyes. And I think you're held by those eyes, held by, what is it? somewhere a sense of satisfaction but somewhere a sense of revulsion too it's finality as he walks off towards the light to the end of Bourne's journey and it brings us in many ways full circle because this is where Tony Gilroy began he always envisaged the meeting Jason Bourne traveling from the color and the sunlight and the texture of India through to the snowy monochromatic wastes of a winter Moscow to meet a young woman and give her the only gift that he had to give her. The only gift that he had to give anybody. The truth. Shana's a very interesting actress. She was in a wonderful Russian film, Lilia Forever, one of the most extraordinary films, I think, of the last five years. 
I was in no doubt she could be the only person to play Arena. I've watched this scene, I should think, a hundred times or more. And I think that there's something just profoundly unusual about this scene coming at the end of a mainstream Hollywood franchise movie. It's a, it's a bold scene and it's a scene of humanity, sudden humanity, unexpected humanity. Older than I thought you'd be. And it's carried as all Picture. bold scenes have to be by I mean acting of the very highest quality. It's not. It's just a picture. No. It's because you don't know how they died. I do. No, you don't. I would want to know. Actors have to make it believable. I would want to know that my... Truthful. That my mother didn't kill my father. And in the wrong hands, this scene could have... That she didn't kill herself. ...fallen apart, been literally incredible. It's not what happened to your parents. But here, in that close-up... I killed them. You know you're in the presence of a confessional. I killed him. And that she... That was my job. ...instinctively understands that. It was my first time. Your father was supposed to be alone. But then your mother came out of nowhere. And I had to change my plan. It changes things. That knowledge, doesn't it? And what you love gets taken from you. You want to know the truth. measure of peace for Bourne, I suppose. He's done the only thing he can. He's, he's answered that question that we started with. What can you do when there is blood on your hands? Well, the answer is not much. But you can atone. You can tell, at least symbolically, the truth to someone. Do that one thing that you can do. Ends our story with the exception of a coda.
this was a very difficult part of the process. You know, we tried two or three ends, all of which were trying to do the same thing, which is keep Born alive, keep the sense of Born as an iconic character, forever destined to struggle for the truth, forever destined to hide from authority. I guess I owe you an apology. But it was Matt who nailed it, actually. He had this idea that we could create a little upbeat thing here. Wait. I wanted very much David born to discover something. That's your real name. You were born for And Frank wanted very much for the end not to seem cynical. He was quite right about that. Why did you come in and we'll talk about it? But somewhere as a group, we got to this. Get some rest, Pam. You look tired. And it seemed to combine all the elements with pace and a little humour, but defiance too, and send Bourne off. Well, we don't know where he's going, but he's certainly going somewhere. I guess it worked, I hope so. Watching these names makes me feel very lucky. I was a very lucky director to be surrounded by such expertise, such wisdom, and given to me with great generosity. I was very lucky. Thanks, Matt.